that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. John begins his his epistle with these words. Like his gospel, which proclaims in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, but that word became flesh and dwelt among us. This beginning of John's first letter resounds with the great mystery of Christmas, God becoming man. Just as in Revelation, John sees the glory of heaven and the great cosmic drama of the end of days and with the Spirit's help has to put it into human terms. So here he's in awe at God becoming man and living among us. The gods that the ancient world had believed in were far from perfect. The Greek gods were no better than squabbling children. The gods of philosophy were far off and unknowable. And in an ancient Middle Eastern poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh, gods create us to be slaves and drown us like the Noah's flood story, not because of sin, but simply because we make too much noise. But the Christmas message is that God who, as verse 5 tells us, is light, in whom is no darkness at all, has come down into our darkness to bring us to the light. The God who tells us that he's the light of the world. I've always loved O little town of Bethlehem with its evocation of that light being born in such a fragile way, into such a tiny place. How silently, how silently that wondrous gift is given. But the challenge of Christmas is that that baby, born so obscurely, is still our light. And that the place he's taking us to one day, as Revelation chapter 21 tells us, is a celestial city where we will need no sun, nor moon, nor any other light, because he alone will be our physical light then, as he's our spiritual light now. This is our God, in whom there is no darkness. And as the next few verses then go on to tell us, we can't claim to be in fellowship with that light, and yet walk in darkness. We are deceiving ourselves if we do. But verse 7 tells us, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This is a challenge, but it's also a great promise. The message version says this, if we walk in the light, we experience a shared life with one another as the sanctified blood of Jesus, God's Son, purges all our sin. It's a promise of God's constant help and renewal. The New Testament gives us too much wisdom to try and summarise here on how we live in the light, but one picture that it offers us is this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 23, tells us, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if the eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is unhealthy, the body is full of darkness. So we remember when Jesus tells the story of the laborers in the vineyard and we remember how he hires them at various points throughout the day. So they're sweating away in the Middle Eastern heat and at the end of the day, the owner pays all of them the same wage. And those who've worked all day are complaining about this and the master says, can I not do what I like with what belongs to me? Or, as some versions put it, is your eye bad because I am good? So the bad eye that causes us to walk in darkness is an eye that cannot see the beauty of grace working in ourselves or in others. An eye that is blind to what is truly bright and beautiful and precious and godlike. An eye that can't see beyond this world. An eye that has forgotten what a wonder the grace and light of Christmas is that's lost sight of eternity. And it's this attitude that will cause us to walk in darkness. And we will have this bad eye, won't we? Because we're human. So would we bring it before God and ask him to open our eyes again? And so, as John communicates the wonder of the life made flesh, who he has seen and touched, and he's spoken to us about the need to walk in the light that Jesus has given us, he wants now to remind us about a powerful tool for staying in that light, confession. And so in verses 8 to 10, he goes on to say, and again, I'm going to quote the message version here, if we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down. He will be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. If we claim we've never sinned, we contradict God. So John's reminding us here of how easy it is to deny how powerful sin can be, how easily we can be blind or blasé to our own faults, and how vital it is that we come before God for cleansing and renewal. And the Bible speaks to us about this all the way through. Way back in Genesis, when Cain murders Abel, God tells him, sin lies at the door. If you're not careful, it wants to have you. Peter warns us in his letters, the devil prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sin and the devil are predatory creatures. And perhaps as John goes on to talk about atonement, he wants to remind us too not to be routine about the cost. In 2015, (coughs) Psychology Today magazine ran an article called Why Confessing 
is good for you. And this article talked about the difference between hiding things that we've done wrong and partial or full confession. And it described an experiment where participants were sent to a website that flipped this virtual coin and asked them to guess how many times it would land on heads or tails. And they were paid a small amount of money for every correct guess. So they didn't know that they were being monitored. And about 35% of them thought, okay, I'm being paid a few quid for every correct guess. I guessed it correctly four times, but let's say six. Nobody underreported, probably not surprisingly. Um, And so later, participants were given a chance to confess if they had cheated. And the number that confessed was about 18%. And the interesting part of this was a later look at how people felt after confessing. Because the amount of negative feeling in those who gave no or partial confession was higher than in those who just made a clean breast of it. And the study goes on to ask whether confessing is like forgiving yourself, also looking a bit at the psychological benefits of forgiveness. But the point here is that God knows that confession is good for us, and it seems these sort of experiments know it too. And that's why the ministry of Jesus is preceded by the call to repentance of John the Baptist that we launch into after the accounts of the nativity and boyhood of Jesus. It's not just the turning away from sin, but the admitting that we need to. Five years ago, a Guardian article entitled How Original Sin led to an obsession with self-help, argued that in secularising the way we think about things nowadays, we'd lost sight of something, that there is a not-rightness about us caused by our fall from God that we can't get rid of. We've just tried to fix it with self-help, feel-good-about-yourself things, trendy diets, lifestyle choices, the old cliches about seeking fulfilment in relationships, careers, so on. The author of this piece isn't a Christian and he doesn't have any answers. But Christmas tells us that Jesus is the answer. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon told a story where he invited a man to dinner who claimed to have no sin. This man said, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good man. You know, nobody's perfect, but I'm pretty good. So Charles Spurgeon picked up his water, I'm not going to do this, don't worry, and threw it in his face. The man erupted in complete rage, To which Spurgeon rejoined, well, there's your fallen nature. But at Christmas, the answer's here. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, that's not political peace, but God making peace with us. And mercy mild, God and sinners 
reconciled. And that's the fix. And so, if we're seeking uncertain, perhaps, will we choose to come, find out more, begin to think about trusting in the incarnate King, come to discover courses and other things that this church offers? And if we know him, if we own him as Saviour and Lord, may we never lose sight of the truth that our wholeness always lies in coming back to him. And so we've titled our Advent messages The Light of the World. And in this passage, we've seen the great light coming down to us, sharing our humanity that we might share in his redemption, teaching us how to let go by confessing. Our liturgy obviously gives us regular chances to confess before God, as I believe we're going to in a moment. And it's easy to just be routine about something that we do all the time. But let's use it. And outside of church services, who else can we be really honest with? Confessional. Who do we have in our lives that we're really accountable to? that we can go to and say, I've done this, I've said this, I've thought this. Please pray with me. And in the last two verses of our passage today, John follows this with two great promises about Christ being our advocate and our atoning sacrifices. He says, I write these things to you that you may not sin. So what does he mean by this? Because he knows we're going to. Commentators tend to think that he just doesn't want us to be complacent, to regard the easy answers of sin as still our normal way of dealing with things, doesn't want us to still walk in darkness, to abuse the great truth, of reconciliation. He means something very similar when he later says in chapter 3 that whoever is born of God does not sin. But if anyone sins, he then tells us, we have an advocate or someone who speaks in our defence with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is a legal term and it literally means that Jesus defends us in the court of heaven against the accusations of the devil, against our own failings. Remember the hymn we often sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look, see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And that's what John is telling us. (coughs) And finally, one more great truth from this passage, that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the world. And so saying for the sins of the world isn't universalism, isn't declaring that all will be saved regardless of their response to Christ. But
but it's merely telling us the same thing that Peter and Paul tell us when they speak of the barriers now broken down between Jew and Gentile, the opportunity to come to God given to all. As Romans 3 tells us, Christ is set forth as an atoning sacrifice that God gives to justify his righteousness, that he may be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so as we celebrate the manger, the cross is never far behind. And what this passage gives us is God teaching us about walking in light and darkness. The challenge to admit our sin, maybe for the first time in coming to faith, or as part of our ongoing walk with him. And also great promises about Christ's advocacy, constant intercession and defence on our behalf. Redemption. Cleansing. This is the wonder of the Christmas incarnation. The word who became flesh, made his dwelling among us, who calls us into his great light, teaches and helps us by his spirit, calls us to admit our failings to him and cleanses us. In stark contrast to how other ancient nations saw their gods, He's our God in whom there is no darkness at all, but who also so loves the world that he takes our darkness and gives us his light.